Well, it's good to see each of you this morning and welcome to Wake Chapel. And uh, it's my privilege to welcome you in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is the day that He has made that we rejoice and are glad in. And it's always a good day when we're together. The Lord's people study His Word on His day. It, it, it all comes together for a great combination. Um, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 21. And while you're doing that, by way of announcement, I thought I would mention that uh, there was some news that came out of the Capitol this past week that has to do with uh, things that concern this body. Well, really, everyone having to do with distancing and mask wearing and uh, vaccinations and all that together uh, for over a year now. Uh, we've been doing our best to try to stay in front of what there is to know for the purpose of making the decisions we can for the best of all of us. Um, to be faithful to the mandate that God gave us to gather together as a church, but to do that as safely as we can. And it looks like, uh, based on the level of vaccines uh, that the governor's looking for, it may be by the 1st of June, uh, we'll get rid of all that distancing stuff. And that means we can pull the tape off these pews and use them all if we want to. And uh, I don't know how it'll go with the mask and so forth. And at the same time, we really do feel as though, as a witness to the community around us, if it's expected at the grocery store and at a restaurant, it should be expected at church. But it looks as though we're going to get back to normal a little sooner than we thought. And what was encouraging to me was we talk about this weekly at staff meeting. But we had kind of set a date and based off the idea that, hey, a third of us are vaccinated now. And over 65, it's 70% of them. Within a month, it might look like two-thirds. We'll think about letting everybody know about pulling the tape and then... Governor is a few days behind that. <laughs> that's what it felt like. But uh, that's the plan, and we're going to pray toward that end. But uh, the same thing is true. Do what you feel best to protect yourself given your uh, risk assessment and your uh, health conditions and so forth. But uh, it does look good to look over more faces over the past few weeks, at least since Easter. Well, let's look at what we've got in store from our passage this morning in John chapter 21. This is the last chapter. And let's read what we're going to consider first. We'll, we'll pray, ask the Lord's help in our study, and then we'll move through it verse by verse. But this is verse 1, chapter 21. The Gospel of John. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way Simon Peter and Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. 
Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of them dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is God's word, and let's ask his blessing on our understanding of it. Father in heaven, we thank you for Sunday morning, for being together, for the prospect of things becoming more normal as we knew them. But Lord, all of that is behind the notion that we have your living word open in our laps. Lord, may we hear from you. And may we be ready to change where needed. Lord, open to our eyes the things you open to the eyes of the disciples on this day we just read about. Lord, we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. I think it was mentioned last week that moving toward this last chapter, the last chapter really clearly serves as not a footnote, more than a footnote, but an appendix of sorts, a postscript, um, epilogue would be a more dignified and, and elegant term. And the reason why we think that is because all of the arguments set out in the first 18 verses have been made and the proof has been given, the truth claims are laid out. And that seems to have been complete the end of chapter 20. With the last two verses, uh, these things were written so that you might believe. Now, by the time we get to the end of 21, he's going to say many other things were done in the presence of the disciples. If they were all written, we, the, the world wouldn't have enough books to contain them. But it seems that there were some loose ends that John wanted tied up. And some have claimed that this was written... Later and added, uh, some have claimed that it might not have been John that wrote it. That it could have been added after his death. I wouldn't go along with all that, though there are reasons that some scholars have for thinking such. The truth that seems to seal it for me is that wherever we find John's gospel, chapter 21 is there with it. In other words, it was never published without 21, and then 21 was added in a later edition somewhere. It was all there together whenever it was written. 
And it seems from the tone of the eyewitness account that it was John that did it. So that being said, what we've got here in this last chapter amounts to more revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. That John felt it wasn't complete unless he added one more story that gives us insight as to who this man Jesus was they spent three years with, who was buried, was resurrected, and ascended into heaven. So if you listen to John in that first verse, it's easy enough to see his purpose for having added it. It says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again. He'd done that before, but he's doing it again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberius. So you've got a time stamp by the word after, and you've got a geographical marker as far as the location. And then he says, and he revealed himself in this way. So that's two times he said he's revealed himself. And then if you fast forward to verse 14, where we finished just a moment ago, he says, and this was the third time that he reveals himself to the disciples. And we know that there's been more people to see him than just three times. But as far as these guys, together, it was their third time. Two were in the upper room, one with Thomas, one without a week later. That was last week. But having said that, um, the Greek word behind revealed in your English translation, that's what it's got in the ESV. You might have manifested. If you've got uh, King James or something similar. But that means to make clear. How many of you, when you're talking to somebody, let's say uh, your doctor, would you prefer that he make it clear? Or do you like those words you don't understand? Because they sound more educated. I'd say, I want you to know those words, but I want you to put it down where I can get it too. I haven't been to medical school it's a, it's a way of making it clear. It also means to shine forth, kind of like clicking the light on in the dark. We even use that. Oh, I get it. The light bulb came on. So that's what's going on himself. And if we were to ask ourselves the question, okay, his guys are here, Sea of Tiberias, he's revealing himself. That's shining forth, making it clear. What is it he wants them to see? Well, there's no teaching specifically here, although we're going to learn next week there's a conversation with Peter that he has in mind. But at least for this little part, it just seems to add to the many facets of Jesus' personality. He wants them to see him. He didn't have to do this. He's revealing himself, appearing, showing himself to them one more time. Look at verse 2. Uh, gives us the the uh, cast of characters that are that are here for this episode. There's Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin from last week, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, sons of Zebedee. Two other disciples were together. So all of them are named. Well, five of them are named. Seven are accounted for. Uh, and we've met all these guys before that are named so far in the the twenty chapters we've read. Uh, Simon, son of Jonah, he's mentioned by his two names here, and that's not uncommon. He was one of the first to be introduced way back at the beginning. Uh, remember, Jesus said, I'm going to call you Cephas, which means rock. Right out of the gate, he, he changes his name. Have you ever met anybody that said, okay, 
nice to meet you. I'm going to call you such and such. Um, I know they do that in boot camp. If you uh, get an all-expense-paid vacation to Paris Island, you, you wind up with a nickname usually. Sometimes that happens on sports teams. You know, there's the name on the back of their jersey, but the rest of the team calls them something else. Not uncommon. We met Thomas, and then we found out that John's the only one that tells us anything about him, and that really it wouldn't be fair to call him Doubting Thomas because he's the one that most uh, clearly articulated his confession of who he really is and that he believes. Uh, there's Nathaniel here. You remember Nathaniel? And he said, I saw you when I was over there. Nathaniel, a Hebrew in whom is no guile, a guileless Hebrew, which is just to say a straight shooting Hebrew. That's what his assessment of this man was when he met him first. And then there's these sons of Zebedee. And they're not named here. There's a reason for that because John is one of them. And John hasn't named himself in the whole book yet. So he's not going to do that now. But they were known as the sons of thunder. And then there are two mentioned here that aren't named at all. Maybe there are two that we do know the names of from the other Gospels. Or maybe they're like the ones in Hebrew. Uh, the book of Hebrews, the others. And the church has been full of unnamed saints, disciples over the centuries. That's not unusual. So we've, we've got some understanding. This is a well-developed storyline so far. But even though we're drawn to these guys, especially Peter and John, and have been able to relate to them as we've read through the story and it's unfolded, the point of this chapter has already been made by John. The point of this chapter is to reveal Jesus. We're going to learn about these men, but that's behind learning more about Jesus. These disciples are back in Galilee, uh, having left Jerusalem after the end of the feast. Some think that this likely took place during the second week after the resurrection uh, we can't be but so precise with that. But look at verse 3. Here's where it gets interesting. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out, they got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. How many of, the, of you would agree that's what you catch most of the time? <laughs> Even if you're a good fisherman. <laughs> that's not unusual. Um, the leadership of Simon Peter seems to be apparent at this point, despite the fact that he denied his Lord three times the night of the betrayal. But Jesus has already seen him privately one time already. He'll do that again later in the rest of the chapter. But it does look like this is the beginning of where Peter seems to walk point for the rest of them. He's already been speaking for them. Now he's making decisions. They're following along. He proposes a fishing trip. Apparently met with a unanimous response. The impression that is left here seems to be a spontaneous decision. There's no plan. They're not really settled in. Um, just like he said, I can't take this anymore. I'm going fishing. I've said as much. Some of you may have. I'm going to say this a lot today. Nothing unusual here. Now, there are commentators that are divided as to whether or not Peter and the others are wrong in going fishing. Any of you that go fishing ever have been told you shouldn't have done that? Wait, 
How about you do that too much? How about that's all you talk about? Maybe. If shoe fits, wear it. But as far as this goes, they had been told to go and wait in Galilee. There's no evidence that says that they went just to go back to their fishing hole, which is a 13 by 7 mile wide uh, pond at the basin of uh, the mountains there. But some have gone to links. I wrote some of this down. Some have called this unthinkable. Uh, some have called this aimless activity undertaken in desperation. One calls this complete apostasy. But then other commentators say it was better of them to employ their time usefully than to remain idle. One said even though Jesus is dead and raised, the disciples still have to eat. And this was their job. It wasn't their hobby. Maybe they enjoyed it. It used to be a hobby and it turned into a job. But this was how they would pay the bills. And rather than doing nothing, if it has to be somewhere, maybe it's some of both. But I'd say it slid over toward the, uh, probably a good idea. It doesn't sound like men who are running away. But then again, it doesn't sound like the disciples after Pentecost either. Where their aim is specific. Where their courage is exemplary. Where nothing gets in their way. You'll never find them in the book of Acts saying, I think we'll go fishing. There's too many souls to be one after the coming of the Holy Spirit. So everything changes then, but things seem to be confusing now. And what is meant by the definite article, the boat, is not explained. Maybe it was Peter's boat. I'd like to think Peter had a boat, but John doesn't tell us, so we don't know. And just like most fishing trips, they're catching nothing. Was probably not unlike other trips they'd taken. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. He asked if they had fish. They tell him no. He says, cast it on the right side, which is similar to the other side from Luke's gospel. And then they got a net full of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, thus John, identifies this as the Lord. Peter hears that. He jumps in the water. The other disciples come in the boat dragging the net full of fish. They weren't very far from shore. So there's a lot of details going on here. But whether or not this is like the situations where Jesus has appeared, but folks don't recognize him, like the men on the road to Emmaus, or uh, Mary in the garden of, of uh, where the tomb is, um, that's hard to tell. It does say that this is early morning. It could still be half dark. This is a hundred yards. That's, that's one uh, red zone to the other. Uh, goal line along a football field. A hundred yards. Heart, yards, excuse me. Um, if you don't play football, a uh, hockey rink is 200 feet, two-thirds of that distance. Can you identify someone's face at 100 yards? Maybe. Uh, they didn't wear contacts like I do. It could have been foggy. All I'm saying is that we don't know if they were kept from knowing who he was, as we see in some passages, or if it's just hard to at the moment. Um, 
the world children that he uses here. Um, that in the Greek, is, is, we wouldn't translate that into English that way. We would use something like boys or guys or y'all. Um, and the grammar expects a negative answer. That's not necessarily seen in the Greek here either. So if we were to put this in uh, modern day English, it would be kind of like, Hey, fellas, you haven't caught anything? Almost if it's the expectation is a uh, fishless fishing session. Um, because we know nothing of the fishing culture of first century Palestine, we really have no way of knowing if the suggestion to throw it over the right side is unusual or not. It could be as easy as just saying, hey, did you try that side? Uh, there seems to be some superstition around the right side as being the good side of anything as far as Greek culture goes, but these are Hebrews. So we really just can't say that there was anything customary about this. And the only reason I mention that is because any of you that fish and have spent time out on the water know that it always seems like the other guy seems to know better than you do, at least in his estimation. Right? Hey, did you try this? Have you got any of these lures? Uh, how long's your leader? Is it fluorocarbon? All these crazy things they might w- want to try to, to uh, troubleshoot your problem. And here you've got professional fishermen. They do this for a living. It's early, so the fishing session is over. They think that's because their nets weren't as invisible as ours are, bigger threads and whatever else. So it, it, it looks maybe the way it was sitting in the water, it's empty. But how would, really the more interesting thing is how do these seven men respond to a voice from the shore? Did you catch anything? Or did you try the other side? And how that would be, who's, who's this joker on the shore? Uh, and maybe the most interesting of it all is that they, they did it. And I've been fishing and having nothing and someone come by and give me a tip. I usually wait till they're out of sight and then I try it. <laughs> or I'll ask more questions. But they try this, and it works. And it works wondrously. And it looks like it only took one cast. Now, as far as the history of the, the fishing in that location and methods for doing so, you've got a few options. There were nets you could cast and nets you would drag. Um, not so much... Uh, it seems the, the gill net type where the fish swim into the net, but the type of net that's drug across the fish and comes around them. Or a cast net, which you may see people use at the beach for bait. I've got several of them, have had several of them, worn some of them out. Uh, that seems to be what would make most sense here because they're only 100 yards offshore. It shouldn't be very deep where they are. And with one of these casts, is no trouble to bring in this amount of fish if you throw it right over top of them. 
uh, there have been a number of times with the cast net I've used after Menhaden, call them Pogi up and down the North Carolina coast, and to get a few hundred in a net at one, that's not a big deal. They're not very big. And if you get several hundred, it's tough to get that into the boat. And I've had to empty half of them in order to get it in the boat. What's different here is that we are told these are big fish. 153 big fish. But still, the idea of a cast net is, is probably makes most sense. Now, when this happens and it's full, you've got the characteristic reaction from both the men who we see responding. First, you've got Peter, or John actually, who is usually quick with insight. And he identifies him as the Lord. And then you've got Peter, who's usually quick in the action department. Maybe not thinking as much first, but just doing. He puts his coat on and jumps in the water. And uh, I can remember when I was little, hearing the story from King James and trying not to smile when I hear that this man put on his coat and jumped in the water because he was naked. Right? That, the Greek word is gymno. It's the word we get sports from. And that's the way that the Greeks did the Olympics. That, that, that word gymno actually means naked. Technically, Wake Chapel has a naked room. A gym. I'm just telling you what the words mean. It doesn't mean nothing on. It means next to nothing on. Now, you picture it. They didn't have the overhauls that we keep the fish stuff off of us with. And they didn't have washing machines. And most of their stuff was linen or wool. You want to get fish slime on wool and take it home? You take all that off. You can wash yourself easier than you wash your clothes. But who's on the shore? The man's Lord. So he's going to put his clothes on. Where anytime you've ever seen on TV somebody's drowning, what does everybody do before they jump in and save them? Take off their shoes at least. Anything that's going to slow them down. This is the opposite of that. He puts his clothes on. Because it's Jesus that he wants to see. And then verse 9 and this is kind of interesting. It, it gives credit to the eyewitness account from John. The action of the story doesn't follow Peter. He jumps in the water and you don't hear out of him until the others get to land in the boat. The action from the storytelling stays in the boat. Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire, fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Simon went aboard, hauled the net ashore, Full of large fish, 153 of them, although there were so many, the net was not torn. They were worried about the net breaking in the previous miracle. Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. None of them wanted to ask, who are you? This was now the third miracle revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So the picture is one of breakfast waiting for them. Um, it seems Jesus intended their involvement because he says bring some of the catch. And some say well, he just means bring it up here on the sand so we can count them and look at them. It seems from the Greek he means let's cook some of those in addition to the ones that are cooked here. I think we are meant to understand that Jesus prepared this himself. 
I've, I've shared this with you along the way. I, I, don't, I don't think that the miracles were for anything other than a sign. I don't think he adjusted the thermostat on days it was too hot. Uh, I don't think that he cheated in any way, and I use that word cheating respectably, to make his existence on this earth different than any other human being. Other than the fact that he knew things. Much like Adam would have been before sin entered the picture. But in this case, he, he, he prepared this. I think that makes sense. And then, barrels of ink have been spent on trying to ascertain the significance of the number 153. Some of you might think, good grief, that just means there were 153 in the net when they pulled it on the shore. But that would, there's been 2,000 years worth of church history to try to figure out what's significant about a 1 and a 5 and a 3 together in that order. And one of my favorites out of studying was uh, the fact that Hebrews and others from that culture like to make numbers and letters mean things. And they would use letters representing numbers to encode things and, and hide meaning. Um, again, one of my favorites was uh, what's called triangular numbers. If you count around the points of a triangle 17 times, you come up with 153. And then there's a reference in Ezekiel. If you use the letters that go with those numbers the right way, you will land on the verse that talks about a river coming out of the, the holy city full of fish. You probably know me at least by now that I'm not the type of guy that uses that method to interpret the scriptures. I'm just going to say main and plain and I'm going to go with 153 means if you were there that day you could count behind them there's 153. Why write that down? Why wouldn't any fisherman write that down? <laughs> I mean, in, in my life, there are two times that stick out. I'll never forget them. One was when I was 11 or 12, and a, a friend I'd known from the second grade was up the beach about a couple of hours. Our family are still friends, and we drove up to have dinner, and they left me with them for a couple of days. And we fished off the pier during a spot run. We had a five-gallon bucket, double-drop rigs. At one point, we were catching them two at a time, and when it was all over, we had 68 spot between me and my buddy. I'll never forget it. We, we fried them and ate until we were sick. <laughs> but it, it wasn't like going to the dock where you see other people's fish hauled in. These were our fish. We caught those, 68 of them. And then in 2016, uh, about 18 months before I moved my family up here or so in the spring, I had been learning how to smallmouth fish in the Dan River, which runs right through the city, right there at Main Street Bridge where the white building, if you ever remember hauling tobacco up there, is the white building with the big Dan River fabrics and neon over the top. That's long gone, but it was there when I was a kid. Right there, in, in front of the YMCA now, I had a buddy at church tell me that he caught a striper with a friend. And I said, come on, you're lying to me. 
Everybody knows those dams keep them way downstream. Well, they'd taken a dam out, and it'd been rainy. Evidently, they got over the other one and stuck right there at the YMCA. So I went fishing for smallmouth again and spent a few hours, and I took a couple of plugs with me to make a lyre out of this guy. And after about three casts, I caught one. And then before I quit, I had ten more. And these were like six to eight pound stripers from Bugs Island that came all the way up the river. So I went home, passed my driveway, stopped my buddy on his mower, showed him a picture because he wouldn't believe me if I didn't. And we went the next morning. And before we were done, we had 41. And a few of the females had come up that day and they were somewhere around 12 to 14 pounds. Standing in the river while people drove past in the city I've lived for 30 years. It never happened like that. 41 of them. And it was such a remarkable day. This is the guy that taught me when I was a kid in fourth grade. He was a Sunday school teacher. And standing there in waiters at one point, he turns over and he says, Isaac Mooneyham, I love you. (laughs) And I said, it's just some fish, man. And he's like, I've never caught fish like this in my life. I'm going to take a preacher fishing more often. And it's never happened since. Why do I remember that stuff? Because it had never happened that way. And it'll probably never happen like that again. I will never forget it. Until I lose my mind. And that'll probably happen. At some point. But I won't forget it in any normal sense of the term. I don't think these guys would ever forget this. That was the day 153 fish were in Peter's cast net. And we pulled them up on the shore. We cooked a few of them. Jesus had done the same. So all that to say, I think it's safe to say, if John has some symbolism in mind connected with that number, he hit it well enough. And I don't know that we can know it. And we can ask him when we see him. Apparently... They wanted to ask him if it was really him. It was like a day that was too good to be true or, or something like that. But none of them would dare do that. Just because they felt like it would call into question whether or not they could see what they were seeing with their own eyes. So at this point, what do we make of all this? Because I think we've made a a decent attempt to understand what it may have meant to these men. And we're going to learn next week specifically what it means to, to Peter and even John. And some things regarding their future. And even uh, what will make sense retrospectively. The fact that they're going to give their lives too. But at this point... Uh, we know what it involves for them. What does it involve for us? And uh, you, you may, in the final analysis, say this is uh, a stretch. I'll leave that for your consideration. But I think the themes that we see here are not unlike our own experience, and not just ours, but men and women, Christians over the ages through church history. Uh, there's, there's restlessness built into this before they hear this voice on the beach. Uh, there is a misunderstanding of things right in the middle of where they are at the moment. Uh, 
even though there are certainties that they have in their head and their heart about Jesus who was dead but now he's alive even with these certainties there's there's still this uncertainty about what they're supposed to do a time of 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 being strangely confused and if we're making a comparison with with these men and the way we might feel ourselves they try to find relief in action doing something anything but it ends basically in disappointment they didn't catch anything till jesus shows up i don't know if you could relate to that or not that i i'm i'm a christian i have a bible i faithfully attend church but as to wrapping my head around all things in the middle of where I'm at, where I am, I'm confused. I'm at a state of strange unrest. Um, you might for seasons think everything's lined up, this is going great. And then things happen. If it's a pandemic or if it's aging yourself... Or being in a weird part of life where you've got children on one hand and your parents who are aging on the other side. And uh, you can kind of see from both angles and you realize that life is full of wonder and amazement. But there's pain and there's loss. There's confusion. There's regret. There's all kinds of things. At no point... Do we ever wake up in this life happily ever after with all our problems solved, even if you go to one of those churches that say that that's why Jesus came? So how does Jesus relate to, reveal himself to these men in that situation? You ready for it? He makes them breakfast. He gives them a fishing tip. Now, people want to say, oh, I don't know where this chapter came from. It might have been written by a different guy, blah, 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 blah. If this was made up, okay, if, if the liberals just want to blow the whole thing out of the water, John's gospel is fiction. No, I would say uh, after they got to shore with uh, their 153 uh, sailfish, which don't even swim in the Sea of Galilee, then he all taught them how to fly. And then after he taught them how to fly, he let them play with fire, fire balls. They, they threw them back and forth in the sky. And then they blew up stuff with their mind just for fun. Because this is some God. Who's, who, who, who has it all, but we're these creatures, and now we have access because we've, we've, got, we've got a relationship with this God now. That's not how this works. He makes them breakfast. And, and this is why I almost think that he did this himself and prepared it himself. Uh, my granddaddy made a boat. Uh, I went with him to the Maritime Museum that day. It was boring. He had to pick up the plans for it. 
But when he was done with it, we all got in it at Smith Mountain. It was a beautiful boat that was a replica of the way the, the little Coast Guard boats worked. Would you ever imagine somebody making a boat and then not getting in it or, or using it? Here's the guy who made charcoal. Tilapia. Fish. Nets. The boat. Is he not going to want to feel what charcoal's like on his hands? Or what the fish smell like when they cook? Or What I'm trying to do is, is, is tell you. You can miss a lot from the Bible and the gospel by thinking that it's all supposed to be grand and spectacular. Jesus wanted to show up to these men one last time. And how did he spend that time? Making them breakfast. Now my wife, who's not in here, she's keeping the kids. She would tell you that the, the height of her stay at Word of Life Bible Institute... That's in Hudson, Florida. I went there a few years before she did. And I talked her out of the last semester so she'd get home, plan this wedding, and we could get this show on the road as <laughs> soon as she turned 18. Um, but she had filled in for somebody. It wasn't her normal uh, position there. They had a conference center. They'd have speakers in, and they had a, a dining area in the conference center. And she would tell you the, the privilege of her stay there was serving coffee to Elizabeth Elliot. And she said the conversation was just a hello, good morning, can I get you anything? But that was about it. And she said the, her dementia was, was, they were aware, most of what she had said was with help of her husband. Now, this was Jim Elliot's widow. Uh, who, who is the great sacrifice of missions that we all you know, think about. And that, that's a great story. But that's not this. This is, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Without Him was made nothing. He made everything. And then He became flesh and dwelt among us and then he made his disciples breakfast not before he was dead and buried and resurrected you know during the humility stage after the exaltation stage he made them breakfast if that tells me anything it's that Jesus didn't ever intend for us to strut like we want to or to put kings on pedestals or to amass wealth such that we can say that we're more important than anyone else. He made this to be with him. And then because it looked like it wasn't going to work because of our sin and rebellion against his father, he came and patched it up himself by taking our punishment, our death actually, so he could make us breakfast. Don't miss the good stuff. That, 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 that's a pitifully low application to put against a passage that reveals to us the heart of our Savior who's concerned with making us breakfast. But to just say, don't lose it. Don't be the guy always looking for the bigger and the better. Find in the twinkle of the eye of your spouse, your children, your parents, your friends, whoever else, 
the best in life. Enjoy cookouts. Go fishing. The Lord made this. It went wrong. And then he put it back together. And then we're going to have it all together forever because of what he's done. So to me, how does Jesus reveal himself? What does he want us to see? What did he want these men to see? That he loves us and wanted to be with us at great cost. To make things complicated, to keep things simple. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this story, a fishing tale, and a breakfast where you served men who seemed at, in, in awe, almost disbelieving that this is the way it would work. We feel that way too. I think we would be scared to ask you if this is really the way that this is supposed to go. We know it's you. We're just surprised at what this book says you do and who you are and, and, and how you love from the heart. We're slowly learning. Lord, I ask that you help us spend time with you like these men spent time and learn. And then when the time is given and the call is made, the target is established that you'll send us to the right person at the right time with the power of the Holy Spirit such as we'll read in the book of Acts to watch someone respond in faith to the offer of salvation. Lord, we thank you so much for all of this. And we ask this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.